and welcome to In a Perfect Policy. Today we're really excited to present an episode about national science policy members who launched a campaign to help provide hand sanitizers for inmates in prisons. Um, so I'm Jenny Brappert and today I'm here with Maya. You want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, um, my name is Maya. I'm um, a member of Catalyst for Science Policy here at UW-Madison and we're really excited today to talk about this group they're doing what they can during COVID to help prison populations in the state of California, which is incredibly important. Uh, so today's interview was conducted by Caitlin Warlick Short, who is a member of Catalyst for Science Policy, as well as the National Science Policy Network. Shout out to Caitlin for helping get us connected and for always keeping an eye out for the connections with marginalized populations and how they're being impacted. The episode today is going to be highlighting the intersection of how marginalized communities are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and are also disproportionately represented in the prison population. And the prison population, because of the density of the people there and the way public health is not emphasized within the system, it's really important that we highlight this experience. Yes, and I would also like to plug a different podcast. There's a few other that cover this topic, but what I listened to recently was the Jerry Powell podcast, um, where they interview both a doctor who's an expert, as well as um, two activists who were formerly incarcerated, and they really dig into these issues kind of from the firsthand perspective. So maybe before you get into this, try and get into one of those episodes, we will link it in the description, because they do a really good job of outlining the challenges of being in prison and trying to take care of your health. Because like you said, in a lot of cases in prisons, what we're seeing is that health is, doesn't seem to be as big of a priority as it should be. Right. And on that episode, which I highly recommend, it's featuring an expert and an advocate in this area. And um, I really recommend everyone looks up what she has to say. Okay, so because we're highlighting an NSPN, National Science Policy Network group, uh, I thought I would also point out that the National Science Policy Network has COVID-related grants for uh, member groups. So if you have an idea like this or another idea that's related to helping the community, uh, especially during the time of this pandemic, you know, there are funding opportunities and the network wants to support you to help achieve those goals. So I really encourage people to look at that and apply because it's an open, openly available. You can get funds and get something up and running to help your community. Yeah, and any ideas that you have are, are going to be great for this grant because obviously it seems like um, COVID's not going anywhere anytime soon and there are a lot of different people with a lot of different unique needs during this time. Yes, exactly. We're just focusing on one area today with prisons, but we'll touch on a little bit on this episode. There's a lot of people that are being affected um, in a lot of different ways. So we'll start out by having our guests introduce themselves, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. My name is Alina Gustinovska. I'm a leader at the Science Policy Group at UCSF and a graduate student in developmental and stem cell biology. 
I am also the UCSF representative to the Title IX Advisory Board, the UC Office of the President, and I'm an organizer. I'm Antara Rao. I'm also a graduate student um, in developmental and stem cell biology at UCSF, and I'm one of the leaders of the science policy group at UCSF. I'm Tom Pospeech, Jr. I am a fourth-year graduate student in the chemical biology program at the University of Michigan, but completing my research here at UCSF. I am also one of the leaders of the science policy group at UCSF, and I uh, have a lot of Prosecco stash for when this is all over. Basically, the core team is the four of us, Anthra, Jack, Tom, Alina, and a lot of the sanitizer making also started with us. Thank you for taking time to chat with me about this. And I'd like to get a little bit more of some of the, the background for how it was that you started doing this specific work and what you might like to see like change. The goal is to do these communities, do jails and prisons, serve them everyone with the first time with bottles, and then come back and do refills until the end of the shelter in place. That's the goal. Started as a project within DSA, sorry, sorry, in that KQED article, and then we voted on using our logo, and then we, I was like, oh, hey, could someone help me? And then like now it's like a science policy group thing. So they gave $2,000 for any of us and anyone in DSA to buy and reimburse stuff. There's people in DSA who like bought isopropanol on their own. So that's how it started. It was 2000 from DSA. Then we got 5000 from the California Wellness Foundation. And then we have 9481 from fundraising. And then the last thing is Kate Chatfield, who policy person at the Justice Collaborative. She connected us to a family who I don't know if they want to remain anonymous who have what's called a DAF, a donor-assisted fund. And they are donating to us on the back end now. And I think that's going to be $2,500, but I don't know how long it'll take to get through. So that's where we're at right now. This is enough for us to make, someone can correct me. So we ordered like 17,000 bottles, but we don't have the ethanol for that. Is that right, Jack? We do not have all the ethanol for it yet. I ordered a bunch of it today, but we're going to need another 150 gallons. So how many volunteers do you have producing? Uh, 16, 16, 18, 18. 18 volunteers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we are definitely getting people involved who are scientists here from UCSF, grad students and postdocs, as well as other volunteers in the San Francisco community. But I would say about half of us are scientists coming in. Uh, on our volunteer schedules. Well, I think it's actually a good thing that we're bringing in non-scientists because many of them have never been in the lab. They're also learning a lot just from interacting with us and what it's like. But yeah, we do have about a 50-50 breakdown. Sounds like you have 18 volunteers. Who are they and how have you gotten in touch with them? Because I think, especially mentioning that there's some non-scientists. I think most of our group has been by word of mouth. We think, oh, is this person somewhat close to campus? Might they be free? what's their background. So I do have a Google survey, so I can, so I'm the volunteer coordinator. So I do have this Google survey going like, what's your email, what's your phone number? And just collecting some information about their background, like, because we obviously want people who are trained to work in a laboratory doing the laboratory component, but those who are not to also help with the labeling and pamphleting. But that's kind of been from my end, it's like, there was probably like a bit of a core group and then that core group kind of reached out to a couple folks here and there. One of our volunteers that I reached out to was actually a rotation student in my lab last quarter. 
and I know he lives like three blocks from here. I'm like, well, he doesn't have to travel far. And I know he's trained <laughs> to help us make the hand sanitizer mix. But I don't know how everything initially started, but that's kind of where I came in the process of this. Yeah, I think a lot of the bottling and, and pamphleting volunteers started off as DSA people. DSA people I didn't know, just sending out to, there's this group called, uh, you know, it's a working group, so like any organization, there's a justice working group. That's the group that I'm most familiar with. And lots of people that I don't know showed up. We realized we need people who are lab safety trained to mix the chemicals, even though they're just alcohol, that's what it is. And so now it's pretty much expanded by word of mouth. So very soon we're planning to also send a call for volunteers to our listserv because a lot of them are scientists at UCSF, so they hopefully will have a small portion of them that do live near campus or can get to Mission Bay within with a reasonable set of transportation. Also, we do have some community members on that listserv as well that if they want to could could contribute. And these are just people who have come to our previous events and, and have been really interested in, and signed up to get emails from us. Our listserv has about 740 is around where it is. And that's just from people who have come to our events and stayed active in the last year and a half. So that's a really expansive list and really awesome to have people from the community as well as from UCSF. So that's really just for production. It sounds like the, the most labor-intensive part is bottling. Bottling and labeling and pamphleting is all pretty yeah. intensive. I think some of the pictures were in the Michelin Local article. It starts off in a room where we like mix the master mix and then add alcohol to it and, and distilled water. And then from there, we bottle into individual bottles. We cap them. And all of that is taken to the room that Tom is actually sitting in right now. Uh, we add a label and then we add pamphlets with rubber bands. And we try to do most of that in parallel we are going to probably change our pamphlet a little bit in terms of the mortality rates because those are a little bit harder to figure out where the truth lies. We'll be working on changing that a little bit today. My personal instinct is to say that the mortality rates are unclear, but they are disproportionately higher in this whatever, and here's a range. Right now we have a breakdown by age, and I think that's effective in communicating who is at risk, but it is not is perhaps not accurate. We don't really know yet. Yeah, okay. and even for a given age group, we don't have a specific number. So I, I like the idea of a range. Have you been able to at least get the materials that you need in a relatively timely manner? Or have there been any major roadblock for you? Bottles are the thing. Yeah, if we had like a whole team, if we had like 20 people sourcing bottles, that still wouldn't be enough probably. So that's one thing we could definitely use help with. Bottles bottles and money. Ethanol is pretty good. Glycerol is pretty good. You know, we have a lab supply chain. That's why we can do that. Hydrogen peroxide is actually not coming from labs, but we have, you need a very small amount and we bought four gallons. And I think we're still on our first, like part way into our first gallons, a very small amount that you need. And, and those are the main, th and the paper, paper and labels take up a lot. We should probably order those because I'm sure we should be wiping out Office Depot any day now. I know we had mentioned also starting to purchase some face masks, particularly when we're serving our homeless and housing project populations. So that is not in our current calculations because Jamal yeah. has been purchasing and distributing with us, but we wanted to start to shift that to right. us so he doesn't have to keep spending his money on this as well. I was curious about that from the KQED article, that there was a mention of face masks, but then there wasn't any follow-up on it. And I was curious about where those are coming from and how you're managing that. I assume that those are just for these communities and not also with the, the prison shipments. That's correct. So Jamal has been buying them 
so far on his own dime, you know, because he's been helping promote this on his social media, I think considers himself, I think we consider him a partner in this now. I was curious about, you know, obviously the, there's the money component for the masks, but I was also curious that maybe about the production of those. And because I understand that there's generally a shortage of masks as well. Yeah, we um, haven't been sourcing them so far. It's been Jamal who's been doing the sourcing. Okay. So yeah. We would and, yeah and, and in San Francisco now, they are required whenever you're going to an essential business, et cetera. So I think it's like especially complicated because you can be cited, fined, or imprisoned. And so it's like a little bit complicated because the kinds of people who are going to have the resources to get the masks in the first place are probably not the kinds of people who are most likely to have interactions with the police. And so there's this kind of, now we have to get masks out into the communities, not only for like the public health aspect of it, but because there's now a law requiring that you wear masks but not a government that is providing them. The thing that I'm really interested in, where sort of the idea, inspiration, the need for this came from, and if any other groups or people are doing this, if you're aware of them across the country, and if not, why not? Maybe I'll, I'll take it in reverse order. We aren't aware of groups that are providing hand sanitizer to people in jails and prisons. Other than Larissa's mentioned, there is a company that a cannabis company that announced that they were planning on doing it. I can get you the name of that, but I don't really know how far that's gotten. And I think they're doing it state by state. It's hard to say why others aren't doing it. I mean, it's really, really challenging. It's like a challenging policy thing to get into prisons and jails. So there's like, I think a group of people who are like, okay, I know how to make hand sanitizer. And, you know, maybe I'm a scientist or maybe I work for a corporation. I think that Part of it, if you're be, if we're being generous, is that it's a difficult policy discussion to say, get, let me get alcohol-based hand sanitizer into prisons because the public health impacts of COVID-19 far outweigh the possibility of a person drinking a not relatively non-toxic alcoholic substance. The less generous interpretation and one that I, I don't think is unfair is that a lot of people tend to dehumanize people who are incarcerated. It's easy to say that somehow that people in jails or prisons made this mistake that you would never make and so they deserve help less than you or I. I think that's rhetoric that we've come across in trying to source some supplies. It's complicated because many people are in jails or prisons as a result of decades of fairly racist policies, starting with over-policing of communities of color, then discriminatory charging in the court systems, and then racist sentencing policies from the war on drugs. And then beyond that, we're all better than our, than our worst mistakes. I think it's hard for people to understand that, well, maybe someone made a, real, a big mistake, but if you don't decarcerate or if you don't increase sanitation, then you are sentencing a percentage of people to death regardless of the crime. So I think that it's people tend to think of frontline workers like doctors first before they think of someone who was incarcerated, even though that's probably one of the biggest at-risk group, given the average age of a prison, how dense it is, and just the inability to socially distance. I'm curious if I, any of you have any thoughts about what might be something that these systems could do as like a next step in sort of the immediate future to help protect people beyond, obviously, it's, it's great that you have prisons that are willing to receive your sanitizer that you've made, 
I haven't thought about this problem nearly as much as Alina has, for sure. But yesterday was my first time going out to distribute to some of the housing projects that we've also been supplying along with Jamal. And I think one of the things that struck me, at least when I was going out, was the fact that there is not that much that I can immediately see the government being able to do to help other than providing these free supplies like face masks, which they require now. It seems to be a lot more of, it feels like this will rely on community leaders like Jamal and, and his group called United Play is the people in those communities only trust people from those communities because there's been such a history of systemic oppression. It, there is a small circle of people that they will trust and I feel like it's going to end up having to come from grassroots communities to help educate the, this population and like the best that we can do as scientists or as people outside of those communities is giving them those materials and helping them in any way that, that we can. So I think the pamphlets have been particularly helpful there because the people that come to us at in those areas don't necessarily want to stop and talk about COVID. They'll just take what we give them and then they go back. And what's nice is that once they have a physical thing that they can take back with them in their homes, there's a better chance that they will get that material. So that's those are the thoughts that I have had recently. Alina, do you have any thoughts? You know, there's like obviously short-term policy changes that could be made and then there's longer-term changes that could be critical for helping keep people safe. This is going to be a little bit lengthy because I'm going to address the public housing projects. I think mutual aid projects are really, really great. But the only reason that we're doing it is because the government isn't. We could just be taking care of ourselves or writing the reviews and having a reasonable balance of like work life during the pandemic. And instead we're doing this. And I think that the government could absolutely take the same dance that we are, which is procuring hand sanitizer or partnering officially with institutions to produce it and partnering with community partners, which is not unprecedented for governments. And so I don't think it's entirely fair to say that like only Jamal could be doing this. And I think that Jamal would say that he's only doing it because he feels like it's not getting out to what he sees as his communities, to his people. And, and, you know, we're seeing some of the racial breakdown data on social media. I think that for the government, if you're going to require things like masks, and especially if we know that hand sanitizer is a really effective tool to prevent the spread of disease, and information is a really effective tool to prevent the spread of disease, is to go out in these communities. And that's not happening a ton. There's these signs that are like, keep six feet away that they've started to distribute to essential businesses. But one, very few of those are going out in District 10, which is the predominantly community of color in San Francisco. And two, one of the other reasons is they don't have many, many businesses. They are food deserts for the most part. There's like three main places to get food in Sunnydale, all of which are basically convenience stores. And so there's like kind of already the systemic problems that exist on a day-to-day of food desert and not a lot of like community gathering space being now exacerbated in terms of like, well, the methods that they're using to try to spread information are like pamphlets that they put out in your taco shop in the now gentrifying mission, which is very different from getting that information out to communities. So I think that the government could be doing the work that we're doing. You know, it doesn't have to be a group of like 20 year olds and Jamal True Love. I think mutual aid projects are great, but I would prefer that someone bigger and better than us were doing it. We're definitely not the best people to do this. For jails and prisons, it's obviously one is is decarcerating. Decreasing the amount of people who are in jails and prisons is the best way to get social distancing. 
unfortunately, you know, fortunately, I guess a lot of counties in the Bay Area have done a really good job, but the numbers coming out of Central California, for example, are still pretty flat in terms of how many people they're releasing and, and how seriously they're taking COVID-19 as a reason to release people. But some of the ideas that Bree Williams has proposed, which I think you know, with our colleagues, which I think are really good, is giving medical personnel the ability to organize jails and prisons rather than security personnel. Because basically, most often, the number one concern in a, in a jail or prison are security needs. And I think that one of the shifts is to let doctors decide how best to handle people and housing in a incarcerated populations. That being said, one other thing that's coming up is there's a difference between quarantining someone and putting someone in solitary confinement. And I think that that's been an issue that's already come up a lot, just because we may need to quarantine people, that that is not an excuse for solitary confinement, that's not an excuse for people not go outside, and that's not an excuse for people not to have time to socialize, but that socializing may need to happen in cohorts with like, young people are now together, old people are now together, things like that. The other thing is that testing for people in prisons and jails should be prioritized. Prioritized over testing of like us, for example, or anyone. And the reason is that jails and prisons are a really unique congregate setting because you aren't able to socially distance. You actually have patient-doctor relationships that are often characterized by distrust. And overall, there's like a culture of skepticism and, and violence. And so it makes it really difficult to take many of the preventative measures we have. And if someone gets sick in jails and prisons, I'm sure you've seen the numbers coming out around the country, but the infection rate for jails and prisons are between like three and 26 times higher than they are for the rest of the population. People are older. I think the average age of incarceration in the United States is 38. So you have a lot of people who are susceptible to COVID-19, who are crowded in a small space, that tend to have not the best sanitation and can't socially distance feel like maybe they can't trust their doctor. And so that's a pretty good recipe for, for a disaster in the midst of a pandemic. And then one of the things that happens is if you have an outbreak, it has a tendency to overload hospital systems. And for prisons, that's especially bad because they tend to be located in rural areas. So you have the possibility of overloading rural hospital systems. And then I, you know, I think that in the long term, one of the things that this has brought up is the fact that we can release people. So for risk assessment algorithms, and Bree can speak to this, is that a 75-year-old person who is in good shape uh, is treated the same by risk assessment algorithms as like a 35-year-old person who, let's say, is in a wheelchair, although the 35-year-old person in a wheelchair may actually pose like a lesser risk to the community. So in the real long, long term, the main takeaway is that we've kind of had a really problematic definition of public safety, which is that we incarcerate as many people as we can to keep the public safe. And often those people are people of color, but perhaps the stance we should be taking is we incarcerate as few people as we can, right? And that public safety is maybe defined with rehabilitation or restorative justice where like people, especially in the cases of sexual violence and sexual harassment, where like victims get a voice and, and say, you know, what do they really want? Because I mean, in many cases, it may not just be straight incarceration that often doesn't fix the problem. And so thinking about what are alternatives to incarcerating people that actually make our community safer. And we've known that incarcerating people doesn't make you know everyone safer because even in San Francisco, the kind of mecca of progressivism, the recidivism rate for people within a three-year time period is 85%. And the 85% of people who are incarcerated end up incarcerated again within three years. This has shown that we can release people or direct them to alternatives and still keep our communities safe and probably make them better 
than we are just by having this like prison incarceration first approach, which is how we deal with problems now. Um, awesome. Well, thank you all for taking the time to chat with me.